we're going to be looking at in a, a message this morning about who are you worshiping this Christmas. So we're going to be looking at a few selected scriptures, and I'll just kind of point them out to you as we turn to a few of those together. But who are you worshiping this Christmas will be the title of our sermon and our time together today. Well, I don't know about you, but I love to ask my kids what they want for Christmas. Somewhere around Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving, we start to kind of get our shopping list together, and I love to ask the kids, hey, what do you want for Christmas this year? And I love to see their eyes light up as they ramble through a long list of things that they think that they may want. And I, I don't know how many of you guys have already opened presents this morning, but uh, we're saving it until we get home, right? So after we get home, we'll be opening presents, and we'll see how we did as a mom or dad. As the kids get a little older, they kind of very clearly pick out what they do want and what they don't want. You might know how that goes. Well, listen to uh, some Dear Santa letters written by children asking Santa, which, uh, which is, is what they want for Christmas. All right, here's, here's what they say. Dear Santa, please give me a doll this year. I would, like her, I would like her to eat, to walk, and do my homework, and to help me clean my room. Thank you, Jenny. Dear Santa, thanks for the race car last year. Can I have another one? Only this time one that is faster than my best friend's race car? Ricky. All right. Dear Santa, I wish you could leave a puzzle under the tree for me and a toy for my sister. Then she won't want to play with mine, and I can have it to myself. Merry Christmas from Cassie. Dear Santa, you can send me one of everything from the boys' section of the Sears catalog, but nothing from the girls' section. I can't wait for Christmas to come, Kent. Dear Santa, what should I leave for your reindeer to eat? Do they like cookies too? My mom won't bring, let me bring hay into the living room. Your friend, Sandy. Uh, dear Santa, give me a tank. Please give me a tank, a jet fighter, 20 green soldiers, and a bazooka gun. I'm planning a surprise attack on my brother, so don't tell anyone. <laughs> That's from Danny. Uh, dear Santa, will, uh, how will you get into our house this year? We don't have a chimney, and my father just installed a very expensive security system. That's from Julie. And then, dear Santa, could you come early this year? I've been really super good, but I don't know if I can last much longer. Please hurry. <laughs> Love, Jordan. Well, those children's letters to Santa are fun to read through, and they're cute, right, in their own respect, just to think about what little kids are wanting for Christmas. But, but I have a question for you this Christmas, and that is, what do you want? What do you want for Christmas this year? We have children, we have young adults here, we have adults, we have senior adults. We're all here in the, in the room together this morning, and I'm asking you, what do you really want for Christmas this year? If you could only get one gift, what would that be? And this may be surprising to you, but that if you are in Christ this morning, if you're already a believer and you're in Christ, you have already received the best gift that you could ever have. And I'm talking, of course, about that gift of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's really by God's grace that we have received, those of us who are in Christ this morning, the gift of faith, the gift of repentance and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. I have received Jesus Christ as my Savior all by the grace of God. And maybe you have too. So you already have Christ, 
if you're a Christian. So my question is, what would you ask for? And you have Christ, what would you ask for as you think about this morning? And I want you to turn to Psalm 27. Psalm 27, verse 4. This is a familiar favorite psalm for so many. And I love how David here in this psalm tells us what he would ask for. Psalm chapter 27, verse 4. David writes, one thing I have asked of the Lord. So we're thinking about this Christmas morning. What would you ask for for Christmas? David is saying, one thing I have asked of the Lord that I will, that I will seek after. So it's one thing that he wants, one thing that he's going to seek after. What is it? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Isn't that great? Good reminder this morning from David, there's just one thing that I really want. I want to be in the presence of God. I want to be able to worship God day in and day out to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple, in Jesus. That's where we find our joy. It's in Jesus. That's where we find our contentment. It's in Jesus is where we find our peace. And there's really only one thing that we need, and that is Jesus And in fact, that's exactly what Jesus challenges the rich young ruler with. Turn with me to Mark chapter 10. Mark 10, I want you to just see this theme of one thing that we should be asking for, if you will. One thing. He he challenges the rich young ruler the thought that, that he was missing that one thing. Remember Mark 10, 21, Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. And so we see David wanted one thing. We see that Jesus challenges the rich young ruler that what he should really do is this one thing, to sell out your soul, all that you have, all of your possessions, everything that you are, that, that, that you have and everything that you would ever want is, doesn't Um, compare to the treasure that we have of the Lord Jesus Christ. Similarly, turn to Luke 10, Luke 10, 38, Luke 10, 38. In a a similar way, Jesus told Martha that there was that one thing, that one thing that she was missing, but only one thing that was really necessary, Luke 10, 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Here's our word again. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. It's really just one thing that we need this morning to be at the feet of Jesus, to be able to worship him in spirit and in truth. In addition to all of this, turn now to Philippians 3. Philippians 3, we see one thing here that Paul made it abundantly clear that he was interested in just one thing. So we're simplifying our Christmas this morning. You only need one gift. You don't need lots of gifts. You just need one thing. Brothers, Philippians 3.13, Philippians 3.13, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 
this morning at Christmas that we'll enjoy opening probably many gifts around the tree, exchanging gifts as family and friends. It's really just one thing that you need. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're a Christian this morning, you may say, well, I've already received Christ. I already have that gift. And so we're going to focus on this morning of worshiping Christ, of worshiping here. And so the other question I want to ask you this morning is, you know, the first one was, what, what's the one thing you would ask for? And now I'm uh, giving you a second question. Who is it that you are worshiping? Who is it that you're truly worshiping this morning? You know, worship is about ascribing worth to something. And to worship God means to ascribe worth to him. And in the Bible, the word worship gives us the idea even of bowing before a deity and laying prostrate before our king. And the word worship also means to labor or to serve. And I guess what I'm saying is this, the one thing that I'm asking of the Lord today, the one thing that is necessary is that we understand and that we worship Christ our King. Hopefully in our hearts this morning, on Christmas morning, we're resonating with these passages of like, I just want that one thing. I I want Christ. I want to worship Jesus. I want to be consumed with him. I want to give my life to him. I want to work for him and serve him, and I want to adore him with all that I am, and I want him to be my all in all, and I just want to worship him and follow him and serve him. That's all I really, really want this Christmas. That's all that we should want. Let's talk again about who is this Christ that we come to worship this morning, the Lord Jesus. And so let me just give you seven snapshots of Jesus from Scripture that explains why he deserves your worship. You ready? Number one, seven snapshots of Jesus that explains why he deserves our worship. You see it there in your outline. But we want to, number one, worship Jesus as the divine baby. Here's a couple of subpoints to that. Jesus was born in a specific city. He was born in a specific city. We know from what we read earlier in Luke 2 that it was Joseph who went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David. Now, Jesus was not just born anywhere. Was it just some random place in Israel that he was born? He was born in Bethlehem. And of course, we know that from Micah 5.2, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, were too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from the ancient of days. That's Micah 5 too. Now, the reason that's important is because, interestingly enough, the Book of Mormon teaches in Alma 710, it's a book in the Book of Mormon, Alma 710, it teaches that Jesus was born in Jerusalem, not born in Bethlehem. But Micah is very specific in his prophecy that Jesus will be born in Bethlehem Ephrathah, that is to distinguish it from the Bethlehem which existed in Galilee to the north. So there's a specific city, Bethlehem Ephrathah, and this Bethlehem where Jesus was born is only about six miles from Jerusalem, and I've been able to be there a few times on trips to Israel. It's an incredible uh, sight to see to go to the nativity where they believe Christ was born, an amazing place, And, and the name Bethlehem, as many of you probably know, means the house of bread, probably due to the fact that in that area they were known for grain production. And pretty, pretty neat to think about the one who was born in the house of bread became the bread of life. 
And that word Ephrathah means fruitful. So Jesus was born exactly where the Old Testament taught he would be born, and he has had the most fruitful ministry of any person who's ever lived. And not only this, we see that Jesus was born not only in a specific city in Bethlehem, but he's born to, your next blank says, a specific family. He's born to a specific family. Again, you'll remember King David was from Bethlehem. Do you remember in 1 Samuel 16 where it talks about how the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And so there we see that Jesus would be born in the Davidic line. It is true that both Joseph and Mary were descendants of David and therefore had to return to David's hometown of Bethlehem in order to be registered. And it was Nathan the prophet in the Old Testament who told David that he would have a son whose kingdom would last forever. And that's found in the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel chapter 7 when it says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 16 says, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So we're talking about the Lord Jesus, the divine baby. That's who we come to worship. He was born in a specific city. He was born to a specific family. And the next blank says that he was born with a specific purpose, a specific purpose. Luke 2 again, the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. The purpose of the birth of Jesus Christ was to be the Savior of the world. He was to bring good news of the gospel to all people. And how could this be any better? And there's no news any better than that, that the fact that we have sinned, that we deserve hell, that we deserve separation from God, that's what the scriptures teach, and yet we have good news in the divine baby, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that while we still experience the effects of sin and sickness in our world, we know that the best is yet to come in the person of Jesus Christ. He's, came, he's come to be our savior, to save us from our sin. And so we can thank God this morning for this divine baby who was and who is and who will forever be worshipped. And your next blank here says that he was born to be worshipped. Jesus was born to be worshipped. Again, from Luke 2 that we read, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Verse 20 again said, and the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard as it had been told to them. And so Can you imagine what it would have been like to be with the shepherds on that fateful night out in the field to be, have this announcement and then to have the glory of the Lord gathering around as this proclamation was made, glory to God in the highest and on earth. And of course, peace and goodwill to men, this word peace not referring here to a universal peace, 
But that reconciliation between a holy God and sinful man, that, that's the good news. That's what Christ came to do. Ro- Romans 5 says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And so how the angels and the shepherds worship that night and how it is that we ought to be worshiping Christ every single day, thinking about him being that divine baby. We think a lot about that at Christmas, and yet our second point, we continue to follow, if you will, the life of Christ. And number two says, worship Christ as, or worship Jesus as the Christ child, as the Christ child. It was a couple of years later, your next blank, the child who was sought after. And here we're talking about the wise men from Matthew chapter two. It was after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod um, the king. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And we see that King Herod sent the wise men to Bethlehem, Matthew 2, 8. He sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word so that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And all I really I'm trying to say here in these verses is that the wise men sought out Jesus. They, they took the time, the energy, and the expense to traverse from afar. They couldn't sit back and do nothing. Their, their worship required pursuit. It, it required sacrifice. It required work. It, it, they were compelled to come and to worship the king, Jesus, who at this point was a child that they sought after him, that they came looking for him. And the second subpoint there says, the child who was worshiped, the child who was worshiped, Matthew 2, 10 and 11 says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child that was with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Again, hopefully you've noticed by now, but Matthew uses the word child several times, which is different than the word baby used in Luke chapter two, which means if you follow the chronology carefully, it signifies that Jesus was a little older than an infant. At this point, he's a, he's a child. Most believe that he was probably around the age of two years old, that they came and worshiped Christ as a, as a little toddler. And it was at this time the child was in a house, no longer in the stable. And these wise men came uh, to make Jesus, uh, they came not to make Jesus king, for he was king at his birth, but they came to worship him as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And we love how they brought these offerings of these three gifts of gold, which would be a gift that you would give to a king, myrrh, a perfume to emphasize humanity, and then frankincense, a gift that would be given as an incense of deity. And so we see the gold that was given points to Christ's royalty, the frankincense to his deity, and myrrh to his humanity, even a spice there, the myrrh that would be for a a person's burial, hinting at Christ's death. 
Well, the third thing I want you to notice about worshiping Jesus as the divine baby, as the Christ child, is the, the, the C there in your outline, the child who was one with his father. This is the child who was one with his father. We see this when Jesus was just 12 years old, so now... He's older than a toddler. He's a young man here at age 12, and his parents had come for a feast in Jerusalem, and when they left to go back to Nazareth, they realized that Jesus was not with them. You probably remember that story a little bit later in Luke 2, verses 46 to 49. It says, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and at his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Do you remember Jesus' answer? He said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? So this passage, when Jesus says, I must be in my father's house, is a definitive reality of the fact that Jesus is claiming to be one with God. You see, the Jews viewed God as the Father in a creative sense and the Father of Israel even in a national sense, but no one had the audacity to claim God as a personal Father. And when Jesus says, I must be in my Father's house, he's saying, I, I am one with the Father. Uh, again, Luke 2 49 says, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? That, that statement, my father's house, is saying that Jesus is giving a big implication here. In, in making this confession, Jesus is making it clear that his first priority was to do the will of his heavenly father. He, he also lifted himself up above the human realm. He, he was not in the ultimate sense Joseph's son or Mary's son, he was the son of God. And in the Hebrew understanding, to put yourself on the same plane with your father is to say that you're on equal footing. And so this Christ child deserved to be worshiped because Jesus and the father are one. Let's move on to a third snapshot of Jesus and why we should worship him this morning. Number three, worship Jesus as the God-man. The God-man your next blank says, the God-man who deserves our affection. So now Jesus, fully grown, human, beginning his ministry in Luke 7, 36, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table of the, of the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. And so here we see in the middle of Christ's ministry, in his adult life, this woman comes worshiping Jesus and this was her greatest desire. She didn't care about protocol. She didn't care about her dignity. She didn't care about what others thought or knew about her. She just needed to be with Jesus. She needed to set her affections upon him, and she worshiped him at his feet. And not only does Jesus deserve our affection, but we also see your next blank says the God-man who desires to forgive. 
Jesus is the God-man who desires to forgive. And this same, this same story about the woman worshiping him with her tears and her hair, it says in Luke 7, 47, therefore I tell you her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, and he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You know, Jesus loves to forgive every repentant sinner. And in a sense, that's a beautiful picture too, isn't it, of what we should be doing on Christmas morning, that we come to worship him and we come with our affection and we come with our confessions and we come to exalt him and to worship him. And I love the fact your next blank says the God-man, Jesus, he does not turn away. The God-man who does not turn away our worship. He does not turn away our worship Verse 44 of that same passage says, then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. And I just love the fact that Jesus will receive your worship. He, he is God, the one who will forgive you. And only God, of course, can forgive our sins. And Jesus is showing yet again that he is God. Therefore, he will receive your worship. And it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. That, that, that lady had a horrible reputation. And yet she came and she placed it all at the feet of Jesus, and that ought to be our heart this morning to worship the God-man who alone can forgive sins. Let's look at a fourth snapshot of Jesus. Number four, worship Jesus as the atoning sacrifice. As the atoning sacrifice, your next blank says, because he gave his life. Because he gave his life. Jesus didn't just come to be born. That's where Christmas stops with so many. Oh, let's worship the baby Jesus. And for us, we know that's where it starts. That's where it starts in the incarnation and then Jesus coming to fulfill his purpose of being our atoning sacrifice. He didn't just come as an innocent baby. He lived his whole life as an innocent adult. One thing to say, that's a precious baby who's innocent because they haven't committed any willful sin, but Jesus grew to be 30, 33 when he was sacrificed, and he still was innocent. He still had never sinned, not even one time. And he didn't only enter this world in humility. He, he left this world in humility. He came humbly, born there in, in the uh, stall or in the barn or, or there placed in the manger, but he also left with great humility at the crucifixion. And we understand this is the culmination of why Jesus came, reading from Matthew of the crucifixion account, 27, Matthew 27, 45 through 50, it says, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them ran and took a sponge 
filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. This is precisely why we worship Jesus. It's because Jesus gave his life for us, that God created us in his image because Christ re Re- renewed us. He, he, he regenerated us. It's because of this act of him being the atoning sacrifice that he guarantees our salvation. And the fact that you are a human means that you bear the image of God, but only in Christ can you bear the image of his son. And that's what Ephesians 2.10 is all about, that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. It's, it's 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so we're seeing here again that we can worship Jesus as the atoning sacrifice because he gave us his life, but also, your next blank says, because he tore the veil, because he tore the veil as he died on the cross, we're told in Matthew 27.51, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. And so we see here that at that point, Jesus made access. He made a way by which we could have access to the Father as that separation of that curtain is now torn in two. We have direct access with God. Your next blank says, because he was truly the son of God. He was truly the son of God. I love the centurion in that same Matthew 27 passage that uh, after he was watching over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place and they were uh, filled with awe and then that centurion said, truly, this was the son of God. As the centurion took it all in, he realized that Jesus was truly the son of God. This, This is what should happen to us over and over again as we take it all in. That's what the centurion was doing. He's watching, he's seeing everything that happens and he's taking in and says, you know what, this man was truly the son of God and that's how it should affect us when we think about Christ's atoning sacrifice that he died and gave his life for us. And then we know that the story doesn't stop there. A fifth snapshot would be number five, worship Jesus as the resurrected savior. It's the resurrection, your next blank, that opens our minds. Luke 24 Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke with you while I was still with you, that everything about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. This is, of course, on the walk to Emmaus with a few of his disciples. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. It is only Jesus as the resurrected Savior who's able to open our minds to the truths of what the Scripture teaches. And not only does the resurrection open our minds, but it also, your next blank, the resurrection motivates us to do evangelism and missions. The resurrection motivates us to participate in evangelism and missions, Luke 24, 47 And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, 
beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. One of the ways that we worship Jesus is by telling others about him. That's what we ought to be doing during this season. That's what it's all about. So we're telling others about Christ, about how he came and about why he came and about what he did and how he was raised from the dead after the crucifixion. We ought to be telling others about his birth and his life and his loving sacrifice for sinners like you and like me. The resurrection is really, your next blank, the reason that we worship. The resurrection is the reason that we worship. And he led them out, Luke 24, 50, as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven, and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Again, I hope you're following the thing. They, they worshiped Jesus as the divine baby. They worshiped him as the child. They worshiped him during the middle of his ministry. They worshiped him as he went to the cross. They worshiped him as he was raised from the dead. They worshiped him as now he's ascended into heaven. The good tidings of great joy. They worshiped him, Luke 24, 42, with, with great joy. It's a reminder of the great joy in Luke 2 and that great joy when he ascended here in Luke 24. It's continuing to have incredible joy of the person of Jesus Christ. And this moves us on to our sixth snapshot of the Lord Jesus of why we worship him. Number six, worship Jesus as the returning king. He is returning to judge the earth. Your next blank. He is returning to judge the earth and to make war with the devil. Revelation 19, 11, then I saw heaven open, this would be at the second coming of Christ, and behold a white horse, the one sitting on it is called faithful and true, in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. We worship Jesus because he gets the final say. He is the great judge, the great warrior, the conqueror of everything and the devil himself. And everybody can make their case before God, but only, there's only one judge over the heavens and the earth. And not only is Jesus the judge, but we also see in your next blank that he's returning as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Revelation 19, 14, and the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepresses of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so he'll rule the earth with a rod of iron, a prophecy from Psalm 2. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and every knee shall bow, Philippians 2, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And guess what? We're not done yet. There's one more snapshot. Number seven, we can worship Jesus as the eternal lamb. After the second coming, Jesus sets up then a kingdom and his kingdom will know no end. And we see your next blank says, the light for all eternity is the glory of God 
and the lamp is the lamb. I'm now in Revelation 21, 22, and 23, and I saw no temple in the city. At this point, we're talking about the eternal city of heaven. Revelation 21 and 22 says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. So while there may be a temple in the millennial kingdom, in the eternal state, which is what we're talking about now, Revelation 21 and 22, there is none. The ultimate temple is not a building, but it is Jesus himself. And that's why he said in John 2:19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He's just reminding us that his body is the temple. We saw that on earth and we'll see it again for all eternity. And your next blank says, the redeemed people from every nation will dwell in heaven's light. Revelation 21, 24, but by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. there will bring, they will bring it into the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does not, who, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so here's what we've seen this morning. We've seen Jesus come as a baby. That's why we're gathered on this day on Christmas. And we saw him grow throughout his life. And we know about the cross and the crucifixion. And we know about the resurrection. And when we think about Christ, I just want us to make sure we're thinking about the whole of Christ. It's the whole point of the message. Don't just think about the baby of Luke 2. Think about the returning king. Think about the eternal uh, focus that we read in Revelation 21 and 22. This, this message is reminding us that when you think of Christmas, think of Jesus. When you think of Easter, think of Jesus. And when you think of worship, think of Jesus. It's all about him. And what's happened in our world today is people want to just push that aside. They want to push aside the full understanding of who Christ is and what, what he's done and what he will do. There were two women who were having lunch in an elegant hotel, and they were approached by a mutual friend who asked the occasion for the meal. One lady replied, we are celebrating the birth of my baby boy. Where is he? inquired the friend. Oh, said the mother, you didn't think that I would bring him here, did you? What a picture, isn't it? We celebrate the birth of a baby, but the baby was somewhere else. And that's how it is sometimes at Christmas time. We're celebrating the birth of the baby, but our culture has removed the baby. They've taken away the baby. They want to celebrate, but sometimes we forget it's all about Christ. It's about who Christ is. And so make sure this Christmas that you don't forget about Jesus, to bring him into the front and center of your worship. Make sure that Jesus sits at the center of your Christmas. Make sure that you celebrate Jesus and that he is your greatest gift 
that you would receive him today. And if you're here, even on this Christmas morning, we're inviting you to receive this precious gift. Hopefully that you've seen throughout our time together that Jesus is more than a baby. He's come to be the savior of the world. And that's where true joy, true peace comes from, is having a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We're here to proclaim that. We're here to worship him as our king, and we're thankful that you've come to join us. So I'm going to pray in our sermon, and we're going to sing one final song, and we'll be done with our time together this morning. Pray with me, if you will. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this, this, this summary of Christ's entire life and his death and his resurrection, his soon coming return, and to spend all eternity with the Lord Jesus. God, and I just pray that you would help us this morning to continue even throughout the rest of our day to keep Jesus at the center of why we give gifts, why we receive gifts, why we join together as family and friends, why we're here today on the Lord's Day, a day of rest, a day of spiritual worship, a day to hear the public proclamation of the word of God and of the gospel. And so I pray that we would go and tell it on the mountain, that we would be overwhelmed with great joy to think of the one thing that we really want this year would be to love Christ more to gaze upon his beauty, to think about him in his entirety, all of his attributes, all of his deity, and at the same time to appreciate his humanity, that by being a human, he was able to take our sins and to bear them on the cross and to appease the the holy wrath of, of, of a holy judge and to provide salvation for all who would turn, all who would repent, all who would come to Christ this morning We come to you to worship you and to adore you as Christ our King. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.